0: Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Lily has some not so good news to share with us about the forest fires in 2023 that swept across Canada. Wow, I'll let her explain what that means. She also has some research to share on how scientists are using visual spectrometers to measure the brilliance of evergreen forests in our boreal forest to determine if the trees are photosynthesizing and growing or not. It's important research. And we've got part two of our three-part series featuring National Geographic photographer Brent Sturton. I'm going to have some tips to share on how to space out trees in your property so they all get to grow big and strong, and a reflection on why I like evergreen trees. Come on, Lewis, let's go find some wood for you to chew on, and Lily. Lily, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you? I'm
0: doing good. What can you tell us about the health of Canada's boreal forest?
1: Okay, well it's official. 2023 is Canada's worst fire season on record. O- yeah. According to the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center, the total number of forest fires in 2023 as of the end of September is 6,676. Wow. These fires burned a total of 18.5 million hectares of forest.
0: That's a lot of land. So many animals lost their lives and their homes. That's just tragic.
1: Around the country, this new cycle of El Nino that we entered into, along with climate change, is altering rainfall cycles and creating hotter and drier conditions, factors that increase the risk of more frequent and more severe wildfires.
0: Lily, I've heard that evergreen trees that make up the bulk of the boreal forest depend on forest fires every 60 years to regenerate, to burn themselves down, drop their seeds, and then regenerate.
1: It's true. In a dynamic ecosystem like the boreal forest, natural disturbances like fires and insect outbreaks are normal and help to regulate forest successions at large scales. But over time, as a result of climate change, you know, the fires are happening earlier, they're larger, they're more intense Hmm. and smoke causing unsafe air quality conditions.
0: Wow, yeah, for sure. We had a lot of smoke issues this year, that's for sure. Oh my gosh, yeah. Community loss, habitat destruction, and biodiversity loss, it's all, you know, ramping up to extraordinary levels.
1: No, and they're not the only concerns. The Boreal Forest is also home to globally significant carbon stores. Hmm. So when it burns, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide are released into the atmosphere. Clear-cut logging and large-scale industrial mining are also reducing these carbon sinks. It's all adding up to negative impacts to water quality and food sources for people and animals.
0: Lily, how can we tell when different areas of the boreal forest are healthy, growing and alive, or slowly dying?
1: Tracking when evergreen trees crank up their chloroplasts and begin turning sunlight and CO2 into energy is difficult to assess since, as their name implies, right, they're normally green year-round. Right. But as new studies suggest, there's another way to keep tabs on photosynthesis in evergreen forests. Oh, yeah? Decades ago... Researchers realized that chlorophyll gives off a tiny, difficult-to-detect-fluorescent glow. Cool. When sunlight hits chlorophyll, the green pigment that produces energy in most plants bumps it into an excited energy state. So when the chlorophyll returns to its normal state, it emits two to four percent of that energy as a photon or a light particle in the red and far red light wavelengths. Right.
0: Red and far red light wavelengths. Okay.
1: So the glow is called solar induced fluorescence or CIF. And, you know, it's not visible to the naked eye. It can be picked up by spectrometers, sensitive instruments that detect a wavelength of light.
0: Cool. So blind people could work these instruments too, right? Because even sighted people can't see Mm -hmm. the difference. We're all dependent on these instruments. That's pretty cool. So in a nutshell, scientists can tell if the evergreen trees are either growing or not growing or maybe beginning to die.
1: Well, actually, scientists are still figuring out what the glow really means. Because they're always green, it's harder to know when photosynthesis might ramp up and when it might ramp down. It's a pretty good measure of photosynthesis, meaning tracking evergreen fluorescence is a viable way to measure the energy produced by photosynthesis or, in a nutshell, gross or primary production of the boreal forest.
0: Lily, it's good to know we can assess the health of the boreal forest. You know, maybe it's going to help us sort of pay more attention to what's going on out there instead of just pretending everything's fine until there's a giant forest fire. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Lily. In part two of my conversation with National Geographic reporter and photographer Brent Sturton, we talk about Brent's experience as a reporter looking into the plight of blind people living in third world countries around the world. What Brent discovered is a way of life people living with vision loss in developed parts of the world will find difficult to accept, but probably not difficult to imagine. I want to switch it up a little bit. And when we met, you also talked about having some friends and some background around photography and your work around blindness and vision impairment Yeah. yeah. I mean, talk to me about that that path you've taken because that sort of really bonded us, and I think in a in a with a common understanding of and sort of relationship. Well, whatever it did, it made the ability for us to form a relationship so much easier because you already had a lot of your concepts about blindness.
2: So I did a story for National Geographic called "The Cure for Blindness," okay, where they looked at the latest developments on on what might be available two two people who are you know are partially sighted or fully blind. It was mm-hmm. everything from implants to extraordinary people to funding things, um very successful, uh blind people, uh causes of, of blindness around the world. Um we we really looked at a lot of stuff. And you know mm-hmm. the reason I got into this story was because I met a Namibian doctor. Dr. Helena Ndume, won the Mandela Award a few years ago. Now uh, the Manila award is given to an extraordinary African every year, someone oh. who has been of great service when Namibia was going through its, its independence struggles, when it was fighting against South Africa, um, for independence, um, a number of talented people were sent all around the world. So I think Helena was sent to East Germany and, um, Helena, um, you know, I think secretly, I've always wanted to be a fashion designer. But she had a really big brain, so SWAPO, the the organization, um, sent her to East Germany to become a doctor. And um, while she was there, they uh, they said to, her, okay, where's the area of greatest need? And they didn't have ophthalmologists, they didn't have eye surgeons, they didn't have anyone to do that. So Helena became one of the first, and she went back, and she has performed. Literally hundreds of thousands of operations on people's eyes now. You know, I mean, she's, she's just been incredibly prolific and she's led camps all over the world and she's developed techniques, um, you know, which, which have really changed the lives of, of tens of thousands of people. So anyway, I met Elena and, uh, you know, she, uh, I saw what she did, et cetera. And, um, she invited me to do some work with C International. So, you know, um, different to what I had usually done, but it led me to this story for for National Geographic. And um, yeah, you know, what what struck me and what was so fascinating was the way that blind people are underestimated, you know? Um, Meanwhile, you know, extraordinary people, extraordinarily capable, um, and in many cases, um, some of the people that I've met had developed you know, there are other senses to a point which really compensated for mm-hmm. the fact that they didn't have sight. Um, but I was just really struck by the fact that, uh, one, so much blindness is unnecessary. It's simply yeah. about access to healthcare, care, yeah. um, which seemed like a great tragedy to me. And two, by the capabilities of so many people who were constantly underestimated and um, how how unnecessary that was, too. You know, um, and then meeting extraordinary, extraordinary people, you know. So I met this guy called Sandy Greenberg. Sandy Greenberg was told that he was going uh, he was going to lose his sight. Uh, he'd just gotten into Columbia, been there three months, you know, was having problems with his eyes, went to see a guy. And the guy said, my son, I'm sorry to tell you this, but by this time tomorrow, you will be blind. Wow. Wow. Um, and then they sent him home from Colombia to go and uh, weave baskets in Buffalo, New York. Well, you know, through a long convoluted route, Sandy rose to become, you know, someone who went back to Columbia, completed his studies as as a newly blind person, and then went on to become a really successful industrialist and sit on Bill Clinton's health council. You know, wow. so you know, again, it's just, yeah, humans are incredible. You yeah. know. Um, there's there's nothing they can't surmount so yeah the blindness is very much a multifaceted thing for me to try to understand and 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 photograph
0: you know as someone who relies on technology to do many of the things i do which and most of it chains me to a desk unfortunately but you know i have a talking computer you know a, a braille display a, a scanner that turns print back into text that I can listen to you know access to ve- webinars and videos and online content all of this electronic connections yeah. to my to my mind and talking books
2: and fantastic I think, right I, think, I just wish that everyone had access to that you know because in Africa in many many parts of Africa if you're blind you're described as a mouth with no hands
0: I I've also spent a year in Sweden and Sweden right. has an unemployment rate for people with disabilities as low as eight percent, which is remarkable. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 they really put an emphasis on accommodation through technology, but uh, but they also have a socialist system where they subsidize salaries based on your disability. And and if you're blind, they consider you as fifty percent productive. So that means that any job you take, half of your salary is paid by the state. A lot of blind people in Sweden feel it. It's an insult. Why can't they be 100% productive, or 110, or 150% productive if they're really good at what they do? And sure. yet, the government says no. You're only you're only half as good as anyone else.
2: With the advent of technology, with access to technology, I think it's certainly you can be more productive. Yeah. You can, you know, you can realize that full potential. Um, but so much of the places where I work, um, you are literally a beggar. You know, you yeah. are literally um, That's someone one, right? who, who can who is consigned to earning the most basic thing. And in terms of income, begging is often the thing that brings in the most. And what also happens is that most often a child is assigned to you. And yeah. so that child doesn't go to school. That child, you know, leads you around, um, helps you to get where you're going. But, in, you know, to a large extent, sacrifices their own upbringing um, and potential, um, to do that. Yeah. So, so it's much more complex, um, in some of the third world.
0: It's not that far from my past either. Like when I finished high school, I, I got two calls when I was finishing up grade 12 and one was from social services said, you know, as soon as I turn 18, I can get a disability pension for the rest of my life. Don't have to worry about not working. And the other one was from a union of blind piano tuners asking me if really? I wanted to apprentice as a, as a piano tuner. And wow. ne- neither of those options, I, I hated piano. You know, I, I never did well with the piano. I never really liked it, maybe because the piano was in the basement. And, right. I, and I had no interest in being on social assistance for the rest of my life. Sure. So both seemed, scared the crap out of me. You know, yeah. that those are the two best options in, in my future. Tuning pianos or living on welfare, you know, it wasn't far from reality, right, back then? Yeah, This yeah. isn't before, you know, talking computers and such. But, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, things have changed a lot for many, but not for all, that's for sure.
2: You know, for me, it's definitely this dichotomy where you see, okay, you know, um, what's possible in the first world, but then the way people are really just discarded in the third yeah. in so many instances, you know, um, and I mean, look, there are extraordinary people, you know, who I've seen, um, you know, pick themselves up literally off the street and become uh, teachers, become, you know, people who run blind schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I, I still feel that there is a general, um, you know, underestimation
0: of the blind on a global scale. Is it because they don't get the technology, or is they just don't get the chance?
2: It's not a priority, hey. I mean, for a lot lot of the time, I mean, you know, these are, it's winter's bone in these societies, you know, guys are just trying to survive on a daily basis. So, um, prioritizing that, that, you know, a blind person is is a challenge. Survival of the fittest. It really is that, you know, like country like India, for example, you know, where so many people are living day by day you know whatever you earn that day determines whether you eat or not you know there's no savings there's no nothing and this is the lives of millions so you know so when you see um you know surgery being offered to young kids for example it was also interesting to me that that if you the sooner you got to children in a surgical process the greater the chance that they, the plasticity of their of their brain was still intact enough to connect with the optical nerve mm-hmm. or you know mm-hmm. all of that was still available but you basically had until they were around seven years old yeah you know um yeah and and then seeing what those people could make of their lives you know with By getting um, their sight back yeah yeah, yeah you know yeah. and even if it was 40 percent i mean well, 40 percent i'd, of, give, I'd know, give a lot for that <laughs> absolutely you know of course
0: yeah. But I think I agree with the plasticity is a thing, right? And my kids ask me, Ted, would you, you know, you must want to get your sight back. And I, and I said, it's too late for me. Like I, I had sight. And then at age eight, I, I was registered blind and did, I lost most of it by the time I was 20. But now to get it back now, I don't know what, if I could even function with sight again. I know other blind people later in life that got sight restored and they consider themselves sighted blind people.
2: And that's the core of their identity. You yeah, know? and so, and
0: the, the brain—it's what the brain allows them. They just—the brain just can't adjust to having all that stimulation. They don't—it doesn't know what to do with it.
2: So let me ask you, Lawrence. Okay, when when you were presented with these two options, um, you know, join a union of piano tuners mm-hmm. or live off social security, how did you move from there to where you are now?
0: I was going to go to college and study business administration, and I probably should've. But those calls made me change my mind. I I went into to study vocational rehabilitation because I thought there has to be better choices for blind people in this country of Canada. So I I studied vocational rehabilitation. I did a a college diploma. and, And at the end of that two years, I was told I couldn't really work in the field because I didn't even work in group homes or sheltered workshops because I couldn't do observations. So I went to university for four years, got a uh, a degree in psychology and sociology and was told i couldn't work as a counselor because i didn't have a master's degree so then i started going uh, doing a master's degree and then i realized you know what i really don't want to do that i really was more interested in what was going on in, in nature and the way we create environments and alter environments and i thought that was the solution if we could fit into our environment find ways to fit in and just find ways to contribute that way you know that that became more interesting to me, and it's a path I chose in the 1980s, and it's one I've never regretted.
2: So, when you talk about experiencing nature, um, okay, so for me, uh, often, you know, a lot of that is about expansiveness. It's about yeah. um, silence. It's about um, the absence of people. You know, it's I, I, I just, um, but for me, it's also a visual thing because you know the grandeur of nature is a humbling experience. Yeah. I love that Um, feeling.
0: I love that feeling of being made to feel very small and insignificant in nature.
2: I get there visually.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I get there with my ears.
2: I'm just really interested in the idea that people have different ways of experiencing the world. Yeah. You know, Um, you know, and that, and, you know, there might be a way to
0: learn from each other in that. I realize after working with indigenous people, and asking them, what was your role as a blind person in your community? And it they, they was always they knowledge keeper. A lot of yeah. indigenous communities, they don't have ways of recording their history, their culture, their traditions. And they count on someone to memorize it, to memorize those stories and pass them on to the next person and then the next person. And those are often the blind people. So yeah. wisdom keepers. Yeah. Knowledge keepers. Memorize these stories absolutely exact because they understand that if you change them to meet circumstances of the today, you corrupt the story. The deeper values are lost because now they're reshaped to meet your own values. They stick to the script. It's quite amazing to hear these stories that are four or five, 600 years old.
2: In all this, do you think that... um it makes sense to you that the that the blind should be knowledge keepers in the situation because their memories are much more developed
0: we visualize what's going on or sighted people they turn on a light and they can see what's lit up in front of them and what they can't see because of a lack of light or just because of walls getting in the way or they can't see around the corner they have a hard time believing or understanding but as a blind person, I, I can imagine the underwater world just as well as I imagine my world on land because it's something I think about okay. and, I, and I visualize and I, it doesn't stop at walls. It doesn't stop at the surface of the lake or the river. It goes right through the surface and into the depths. That's where we excel. Catch my third and final installment of my conversation with National Geographic reporter and photographer Brent Sturton on episode 94 of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. We'll be talking about how he deals with the images he's recorded on his camera and can't get out of his mind. You know, I often thought about getting a chainsaw, and I know other blind people that have them. They wear helmets, they wear hockey shin guards, they wear gloves... They wear goggles, but I just don't think it's worth it. I mean, blind people aren't meant to be lumberjacks. I think a good buck saw is all you need and some good leather gloves. You get those leather gloves at the hardware store, get them in packs of four or six for maybe 10, 15 bucks, because you're going to end up nicking the fingers on the glove that you're holding the tree or the branch that you're going to go cut with the buck saw. A buck saw looks like a, a bow, you know, like a, from a bow and arrow. The, the handle is curved like a half circle, and then the blade has very sharp teeth stretched across the mouth of that half circle. Now, you when you're pushing on that blade, when you're pushing on that saw, it's cutting. When you're pulling back, it's not. The trick is it will bind. So as you're cutting, you always want to make sure you can push the piece of wood that you're cutting so that that gap opens up slowly so your blade doesn't get stuck because otherwise you'll be putting a lot of energy into moving a blade in in between a cut where the wood is actually pinching the blade. You want to cut branches uh, at least no closer than two inches or five centimeters from the trunk of the tree. If you skin the bark on the tree by trying to cut the branches off too close to the trunk, you'll create a a rip in the bark that can take a long time to heal. And if there's a rip in the bark, that means ants and other pests can get underneath the bark and cause havoc to that tree and eventually cause its death. And you won't even know until five years later. If you leave like a little two inch stump hanging off the side of the tree, the tree is used to that. It's used to branches breaking off and leaving little stumps behind. It'll rot the little stump off and about a year or two later, you could just pop it off with your hand, just hit it with your hand softly and it just falls away and leaves a, a little sort of natural sort of scab in the bark of the tree that it quickly heals over. And within three or four years, you won't even know those branches existed. Why are you taking off the lower branches? You can take off up to one-third of a tree's branches. And for blind people, it's nice because you don't have to walk into the branches. You can walk around underneath the branches. It also means there's gonna be less places for mosquitoes and black flies to hang around. They love hanging around in their green trees, but they don't like to get too high. Uh, above ground because that's where the birds are so they they only get about 10 feet above the ground before they uh, they won't fly any higher because they know the birds are going to grab them so if you can get the branches you know eight feet off the ground so you can walk around and in the winter even if if the branches are hanging down a bit they're not hitting you in the face you've done a good job Space them out a bit too. The trees grow in really thick to compete against other species that are going to try to get sun. But at some point, there's just too many of them and they'll all become stunted. So if you space them out, you know, six to eight feet apart, they'll grow big and strong. They'll have lots of nutrients in the soil to feed themselves and water and sunlight. And they'll just take right off. You'll have a force before you know it. Why do I like evergreens well I like the smell and I like the quiet you know and the boreal forest you have a lot of birch and poplar and evergreens and poplar trees have very rattly leaves it's just amazing how much they rattle in the wind it just becomes annoying well I find it annoying and because they're everywhere and they're just shaking 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 and you can't hear other sounds bird sounds the sounds of the surf the sounds of animals wind chimes that you want to put out there to help you echolocate yourself and, and and find your way around so I eliminate the poplars. They're going to die anyways. They only live 40 years and then they just start cracking and falling down. Birch trees will live a lot longer. I like to leave some birch trees around because they're just beautiful to touch. You know, that papery bark, even the silver and the yellow and the white paper birch, they're all beautiful trees. And uh, they do have rattly leaves, but I'll leave some up for sure, just for some variety. Otherwise, for me, it's fir trees, spruce trees, pine trees. Those are my favorites. You know, you're going to get a bit of tar on you in the summertime when the tar starts pumping out of their skin, but they smell so nice and they sound so beautiful in the wind. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favourite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions and questions at feedback at AMI.ca. Thanks to Mark Affalo, He's our technical producer. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank.